Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. What does the future look like? By melting business acumen and innovative technology, Deloitte can help you build the future only you can imagine. They can help engineer solutions for your business reality today and your vision for tomorrow to get you to a world where you don't just dream it, you build it. See how you can engineer advantage with Deloitte at Deloitte.com slash US slash engineering advantage. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas other problems. Today I'm talking to Dylan Field, the co-founder and CEO of Figma, which makes a very popular design tool that allows designers and their collaborators to all work together right in a web browser. You know how multiple people can edit text together in Google Docs? Figma is that for design work. You don't need a fancy computer with a ton of horsepower to run Photoshop. You just do it all in the browser. I know a lot of designers at big companies that just use Chromebooks now because they work entirely in Figma. We just redesigned The Verge. We used Figma extensively throughout that process, just sending Figma links back and forth. So for years, people have been waiting on the inevitable Figma versus Adobe showdown. Since Figma was such a clear competitor to Photoshop and Illustrator and the rest of Creative Cloud. And Adobe was actually starting to compete. Photoshop is moving to the web and they had a design tool called Adobe XD that went up against Figma, the whole thing. At one point, someone tweeted at Dylan and asked him about taking on Adobe. And Dylan famously replied, quote, our goal is to be Figma and not Adobe. Well, buckle up because in September, Adobe announced that it was buying Figma for $20 billion. Figma's gonna be Adobe. Now, everyone is saying Figma is going to remain independent inside Adobe, but you know, it's a little weird. So I wanted to talk to Dylan about the deal, why he's doing it, how he made the decision to sell, and what things he can do inside of Adobe that he could not do as an independent. I also wanted to know what the org chart inside Adobe is going to look like. I mean, it's Decoder after all. To Dylan's credit, he hung in there. He engaged all these questions, even when they got a little uncomfortable. Dylan's also a pretty expansive thinker. So after we talked about his company getting the FU money from Adobe, we talked about the future for Figma, making VR Figma for the metaverse, and where WebGL is going, and whether he can continue to bet on the browser. We got all the way to talking about AGI, which is artificial general intelligence, or the kind of AI that can fully think for itself. This episode takes a turn. I think you're really going to like it. One note, we do talk a lot about WebGL. That's the graphics processing standard that allows Figma to run in a web browser. Without WebGL, there's no Figma, so you're going to hear about it a lot. Okay, Dylan Field, CEO of Figma. Here we go. Dylan Field, you are the co-founder and CEO of Figma. Welcome to Decoder. 
Thank you. Excited to be on Decoder. Let's make it happen. Yeah. Well, so you and I had dinner uh, a while ago. It was before you were going to sell the company to Adobe. It was before we launched our redesign. May or may not have been like in talks with Adobe at that point. <laughs> but you were telling me about the redesign and it hadn't yet lit up the entire internet. Yeah. And I was very intrigued to see it at that point and saw it a little bit afterwards. Uh, but you're telling me about the process of it, and that was really cool to hear about. Yeah, so I was dangling. This is like inside baseball of how we get people to come on the show. I was like, I'll show you the redesign if you come on Decoder. And then you announce your Adobe deal, you want quiet, we launched the redesign. But here we are, finally happened. I'm very excited to talk to you. There's yes. a lot to talk about, a lot of Decoder stuff to talk about. And then Figma itself is a fascinating product. with a lot of fascinating elements to how it works, what it runs on, all of that. But let's start at the very beginning. Tell people what Figma is in a way that they can explain to their friends if they haven't heard about it. So Figma is a platform for visual communication design. We start off with FigJam. FigJam is our brainstorming whiteboarding ideation tool. It's a great place to help run meetings with your entire team. And then uh, and also to facilitate them, make them more fun, more engaging, bring more ideas forth. From there, we have Figma Design. Figma Design is a great platform to be able to really work with your design team across the company and to express visual design, interface design, and more. And then finally, we go into sort of the design and production side. And not a lot to talk about there today, but I think over the next year, there'll be a lot there uh, to speak about. When you say the design and production side, and there'll be a lot to speak about, you mean actually generating the code that makes a website? One thing that people don't realize is that about a third of the people that use Figma on a weekly basis are developers. I just think we could do a much better job of serving their needs. So right now, we're so focused on designers and people that work very close to designers and that co-creation process. How do we make it so that there's a better way to go from design to production to do that handoff and to make it so that you're able to align really well with your developer counterpart? I think there's just a lot we can do there. So something that we're thinking a lot about right now. So just to unpack that for people, FigJam, right? You're, you're going to launch a new product or something on the internet. In FigJam, you're client, your product manager, your designers, some other stakeholders all get together. They have like a meeting. You might be in HR or sales or really anywhere in the org. Yeah. It's like anywhere that wants to design a better meeting, that's FigJam. And we're seeing it all across the org there now, which is pretty cool. Okay. So then you go from there to Figma where the actual designers design a product. Yep. And then from there you go, you have to go write some code to ship the product that has been designed through this process. Exactly. You're saying, Idea to design a production. And you're saying you want to go into that last stage. You're not there yet. Exactly. So Figma is like the main tool. It's the thing that designers use. It's the reason the company is famous. I imagine it is the reason that Adobe wants to buy the company right now because it's the product that is taking market share away from Adobe. It all seems very obvious right now in the way that every successful company seems obvious at the end of one path. When you started this 10 years ago, people thought this was a bad idea. Talk about that journey where you knew, okay, we want to bring design to the web in the way that Figma works in the web. And what was the moment that you knew it was going to work? Totally. There's a lot there. I think just before I get into like 10 years ago, I'll also add that I think I probably had as much conversation and heard as much excitement about FigJam from Adobe as I have about <laughs> Figma design at this point. So we'll get back more to that later. But yeah, 10 years ago, I mean, we were, I, I think when I was at LinkedIn, I was an intern there and I heard Reed Hoffman say, you know, most good companies have a good why now. And kind of interesting to think about the different why nows that exist in software. Like for a long time, I couldn't figure out like, what was Twitter's why now? And then I was realized at some point that it was, uh, you had SMS, so people are used to short form 
content exchange. And also you had this cultural change, which was AM away messages. Oh, yeah. Remember away messages where you'd like update your away message? It's like basically Twitter before Twitter. Yeah, in a, in a less democracy altering way. But yes, I was I was a master <laughs> of the AM message. But seriously, I mean, like people were trained into this behavior. And so it wasn't a new behavior when Twitter launched. It was something that enough people already had a critical mass around knew how to do. Anyway, it can be social like that. It can be a moment in time. This thing is regulated. Now it's not regulated. Or it could be like a new technology. In our case, we were set about new technologies. So we were looking at WebGL and drones. My co-founder was very convincing that we shouldn't do drones. <laughs> so we went to WebGL instead. And we were exploring there. And it was like, okay, WebGL lets you use the GPU in your computer in the browser. What could we do with that? And so we started proving it out. He had made a bunch of tech demos already. And we started to look at it in the context of professional-grade tools and eventually interface design. And... The more we built WebGL, the more confident we were that this could be a technology we could use to like go build a professional grade interface design tool. But no one believed us, like you <laughs> said. I kept trying to recruit people, and I, I found that like if I didn't show up and immediately open my laptop and show them the tool working, they just wouldn't believe me. And it would like I couldn't even get them to like wait around in a meeting. Like they do it because they're polite, but I would you know, people make their they form their first impression quite quickly. And I found the candidates that I wait till the end of the meeting to show them the tool. Versus the ones I showed them the, the tool in like the first two minutes, it was a way different conversion probability of whether they're interested in the next step. Because you know if you're sitting there with me for an hour, yeah, and you're just like this guy is full of it, versus oh wow this is like maybe legit. So people didn't believe it's a very that, different proposition that you could run not at all desktop class design in the browser using WebGL. No, no, it's just like I think there've been too many examples of prior art, not just in creative tools, but just in in folks trying to build really good web applications. And outside of things like Google Docs and G Suite, there weren't a lot of good examples yet. Some people in the know were seeing like things like Onshape mm-hmm. that were starting to come out. I think you know Aviary was a predecessor to Figma in some ways that did good work, but in Flash. And so it's kind of like the wrong technology, the wrong time. Yeah. And you know it's amazing how just a few years can make that difference. I actually want to get into the web and WebGL and what that means for Figma as a company. Heck yes. Because I think it's really important. And I... I think it's under-recognized Figma is a web standards company in like a very important way. But let's come back to that. Let's do the decoder questions first. I think of these as the basic questions. How many people are at Figma right now after 10 years? Yeah, so we're nearing 1,000. Have you scaled at a linear rate? Have you added 100 people a year for 10 years? Or has there been peaks and valleys? I'd say we're, we've roughly doubled year over year most years. And where do you double? How is Figma structured? Right now, this last year, we probably doubled across the org with perhaps a bit more growth in sales. In sales? Yeah. In sales and like sort of go to market in general because we see the customer demand there and we're trying to scale to reach it. But yeah, in the past, I, I think pretty much we've, we most years have doubled pretty much across the board. And, you know, there's little variations here and there. What does sales look like at Figma? Do, are, do you have people cold calling giant companies and being like, have you thought about designing on the web? Or is it inbound, you're answering questions, you're designing licenses. What, what does the sales process actually look like? Yeah, it's most of inbound and outbound. So the go-to-market is very influenced by bottoms-up. I think in general, enterprise companies are not rocket science. <laughs> so, you know, you got you to gotta find customers somehow. Maybe it's through like marketing or it's maybe it's through SDRs that are, like you said, cold calling, cold emailing. Maybe it's your product qualified leads. For us, a lot of it's product qualified. People that are using Figma, and then say, okay, wait a second, my needs are evolving. I'm trying to get more of my company on Figma, raising their hands saying, how can I 
do that and we're trying to help. So we try to make it very consultative, make it so that people are able to you know, have us as a trusted partner, and then we're able to work with them to figure out the right way to expand their figure usage. Just to be clear, the bottoms up sale is when people just at a company just start using a tool without telling anyone. Exactly. Which is how I do everything, right? But that's the bottoms up is you get, you get the users because they are using a good tool and the company is sort of forced to buy the tool for everybody. The other way around is you go and you sell the product directly to the CIO. Well, you work with the company. Yeah, you work with the company. Yeah, usually there's some combination of people are saying, hey, this is interesting. And then you know we try to get the conversation early enough so it's no, no one feels weird about it. We build a relationship, try to make it so people understand, okay, what is Figma? Why could it be valuable? How could it work uniquely with your company? And you couple that. So you kind of like work with a design leader or a product leader or, or IT in order to then work together with the champions in the organization that want to see this become the standard and then together bring it into the organization. Yeah. But yeah, I think also Datadog has a really cool history of serving developers, which have some similarities, not entirely one-to-one, but are somewhat similar to designers. And also they have a very heavy motion on expansion. So over time, the account grows and they've managed to figure out how do you add more value through new products. And that's something that we care about about it too is how do we build new products and new services for our customers over time? That's great. So as CEO, you have a lot of people reporting to you. Where are most of the people reporting from? Is it on the product side? Is it the sales side? Is it, do you just have a lot of accountants? Yeah, a combination of EPD and sales are probably the biggest areas. And is that where all the recruiting focus is? It's across the board. I mean, I think you want to make sure that people have just a great experience coming to Figma regardless. I, I think, um, you know, what I tell people is that it's every manager's responsibility to recruit. You can't pretend on recruiting at the same time. Uh, hopefully recruiting can make it a lot easier and make sure the experience is like really good. And then also, then it's HR's responsibility to make sure once people are in the building, how do you make it so that uh, they have a really great experience of being a Figmate and they're learning, they're developing, you know, they've got great career options, they've got mentorship, if they need feedback, they're getting it uh, and whatnot. And I think the sort of cumulative sum of all that is that our culture is the best it's kind of ever been because we've invested and focused so much on that over the past few years. And, you know, we've had days where our culture was not always as good <laughs> in the early days. And so, like, I have a comparator point there, and I feel really good about how Figma works and just sort of, like, hearing the feedback from newer hires and that it matches what they were sold has, has been great to hear. But there's always ways to improve, too. Actually, let me ask you about that a little bit, about the early days. You have been very open in other interviews and other talks you've done that you had to learn how to be a leader sort of on the job at Figma. Most definitely. You received some pretty hard feedback along the way. As you mentioned, your only other job before this was you were an intern. So here's the decoder question. You're 10 years on this journey. You just made a gigantic decision to sell this company. How do you make decisions? Yeah, depends on the decision always. I think if it comes to product engineering design roadmap, there's always a tension between wanting to give people some guidance on how do we be top down in terms of what's the strategy, where is the company going in broad strokes, where are the top three things we're doing that everyone needs to know, but also be empowering. Make sure that people across the organization at all times are able to understand and to be on the ground, be talking with users, be really deep in the details and the technical specifics of what is possible, what's changing locally for their product area, and to do both, right? You want to meet somewhere in the middle of, hey, here's this local feedback and ideas that we have, as well as top down, here is like a point of view on strategy and where we shake the company 
somehow those have to meet and you need to be able to resolve tensions and work through those, any conflicts that arise. And I think, you know, education, context building, that's an area that can really help with these things. When it comes to, in general, making decisions uh, under, especially when you don't have enough data, I think it's not like there's one framework that is the magic framework. You know, people talk about regret minimization, where, okay, put yourself in the future and imagine yourself looking back, which path do you regret less? And it's like, that's a really good framework. <laughs> Turns out it's not the only framework, yeah. right? There's, there's like, you know, you can come up with all sorts of frameworks for any decision you're trying to make. And so, for example, when we were deciding, okay, do we sell the company or not? First of all, I was very lucky to have people around me, like my board, for example. And eventually, throughout the process, once we got to a certain point, I was able to be more open with my exec team, talk with them. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I mean, it's my decision. I own the decision. And I tried very hard to try on a multitude of frameworks and each one led me to, this is a good call. I won't go into the details of like all those frameworks. What are the top two frameworks? <laughs> uh, I, I won't go into the details on all of them right now. I, just, but I, I asked think for all of them. I asked for two. Being that, what were the top two? <laughs> um, but I think what's interesting no, wait, wait. is what were the top if two? you have conflicts. Well, I mean, obviously monetary is a framework, right? It's not the only <laughs> one. It was the first one. Um, impact. Okay. Impact is a framework. Um, like, will this lead to us having less impact? I, I think, um, you know, regret minimization is, is one that you could certainly yeah. think about. Anyway, I could list off like 10 more, but again, I don't want to go into the details there. Making sure that like we're able to continue building a really important culture, that was definitely a consideration. Sure. And attracting the type of people that we've been attracting, I think would have been spooky to me if we didn't think that was the case. And I built a lot of conviction that it was. But thinking through all these different frameworks, not only did it highlight where the gaps were in my thinking and what the things were I had to figure out. It also highlighted important conversations I needed to have with the Adobe team. And the more I leaned into those conversations and brought up my concerns, the more I gained conviction that like this is a really, really good decision for not just the company, but for our users and our community. And it also built our trust. It built our, our relationship with the team. And there's never a moment where I was like, oh, I have this framework that I'm trying on and it's, it leads me a decision of like, we shouldn't do this. And so that was a sign. I think if you do get to that point where you have different frameworks that lead to different answers and you have to like have some meta framework, how do you sort through all the frameworks, which is maybe a little, right. a little tougher. Let me give you a framework where it doesn't work out so well. And it's a framework that the government's going to use. And it's shocking to me that okay. you're out doing media in the middle of this acquisition. But here's a framework that government's going to use. The Federal Trade Commission or European regulators, they're going to say Adobe is a gigantic corporation with dominant market share amongst designers in the world. Figma represented real and meaningful competition to Adobe and was taking share away from Adobe in a variety of contexts. And Adobe buying Figma reduces competition in the market. I've heard this from people who do not care about antitrust law. Crap, this thing that was competing with Adobe that I was excited about is going to get swallowed by the board. I've heard this from regulators who care a lot about competition from the market. And I've heard it from your local podcast host who thinks that tech companies need a lot more competition, especially big tech companies. That's the framework that I think is really, it comes out as a no, right? It comes out as you just listed off a lot of people you obviously care about, right? Who are on your team, who are in control of the destiny of this company. And you're going to cede some of their control over the future of Figma to a very large company with its own needs and aspirations. And you might snuff out the thing that makes Figma such a good competitor. And whether you think that's the right policy choice, the right financial choice or whatever, 
the thing that's exciting about tech is that there's always a disruptive challenger that shows up and knocks these giants off their pedestals. And Figma is that thing. Isn't that the framework that says, no, you shouldn't do this. You should see if you can actually knock Adobe off the mat. Um, I think for the user community, like I said, that was a critical component of this decision. And, you know, that was probably the, the first audience that I thought of as we were, were thinking through it. As I like, thought through that decision, thought through the community and what we could do for them, it actually led me to becoming more convinced that we should do this versus less. And so part of that is because there's a lot of things we don't do in Figma today that are needed in the product development process. Like if you think about product development, it's not just pixels on a screen. You have a range of media types that you're going to bring in uh, to the product development process in today's world. Like think about the Verge redesign, for example. It's not like you just use static imagery. You use video. In the future, you might use 3D content. But those tools exist. We, we can pay for those tools too. Why, why does Figma need to be a part of those tools? It's not like JPEGs and MP4s are difficult to move around. I, I think that there are really good advantages that you can have as someone using a set of tools if the tools uh, actually connect really well in one process. Right? It's like we were talking about before, Figma is going from idea to design to production. And we're really kind of like trying to make the product development process as good as possible. So what else can we do if we're able to bring more mediums into that? I think there's a lot of things that become possible there. Name a thing, name a specific thing where, and Adobe is a vast company, so I will readily concede that I am not, I think most people listening to this do not know Adobe has a gigantic ads business, right? Adobe is a huge company. Many, many things can plug into whatever Figma is doing. But give me a concrete example of why being owned by Adobe is better than a partnership with Adobe. Photo editing is a, a great example of something that I think we could do a much better job of in the product design process. There's a lot of times where you're going, you know, you're, you're using Figma plus you're using other tools for photo editing, many of which owned by Adobe right now. But, but wait, wait, why does the ownership of the tools matter? So being able to go and actually bring assets and do a complex import-export uh, process into another tool versus being able to go into seamlessly into, with your workflow, a new modality, I think is extremely helpful. Uh, at the end of the day, like our, our vision for Figma is to make design accessible to all. Sure. It's to make it so you're able to get things out of your head onto the canvas faster. So how do you do that and make it so that you're able to transition across these modalities quicker? So you're saying you're opening Figma. I'm just trying to be very concrete about this. Yeah. You're opening Figma, you, you've designed some interface, you've got a photo element in it, you click on it, you get the full set of Photoshop tools right there in front of you. Instead of having to open Photoshop and create a file. I think there's a huge opportunity to bring these capabilities from Adobe Creative Suite, uh, Creative Cloud into Figma and utilize them more and make it so that you're able to go and somehow transition really seamlessly across these different creative, creative modalities and have a more seamless way of working. And by the way, I don't think that we're just talking about product design at the end of the day too. I think that there's an opportunity to scale the impact of Figma much more broadly. Sure. And so I think we can start to make it so that you take the web-based tech that we've developed, the collaboration, different methods of collaboration we developed and the platform we developed, and I'll apply that to many new other areas, many other creative areas as well. And finally, you know, I think that there's a huge opportunity to think about how creativity and productivity come together here.
And so FigJam, like I mentioned at the start of our conversation, it's not just a tool for designers. It's something being used across the entire organization. It turns out that visual canvases are actually really helpful for tons of people to use. And it's a way for teams to come together. It's a way for people to run meetings. You know, we're in a world where a lot of people are trying to get into a creative productivity game. And I think that that is an area that's heating up in competition a lot. You know, for example, Microsoft Designer just came out. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, I'm rolling my eyes because <laughs> another thing that just happened is that Adobe announced it was going to be purchasing Figma and that it was going to sunset Adobe XD, which is the competitor to Figma. I don't think they announced that. And so, yeah, it's you can you can add and you can subtract from the market. And this is net zero that Microsoft is going to bundle some more stuff into the office suite. But at the end of the day, Adobe's competitor to Figma is going to go away because the company is going to own Figma. I, I hear you that there's ways to make things more seamless, but I'm still not clear why Adobe has to own Figma to make some of those things more seamless. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to like highlight that there's a lot of things we can do here to, to make the customer experience of, of using Figma way better as a result of this. So I, I think it's really, really good for our community, really good for our user base. Really good for the designers in the Verge team. <laughs> we, we, we did our redesign of Figma. It was fun to use. There's stuff in this structure that's really interesting to me. So you, everyone's been very clear that Figma will be an independent division inside of Adobe when this is all said and done. Still part of Adobe, not a subsidiary, but a division of Adobe unto itself. You're going to report to an Adobe executive. Who are you going to report to? David Wapwani. And what's his role at Adobe? He's the chief business officer of Creative Cloud and digital media. Okay. This is just a really small question. Did you get to pick? Like I I've never been acquired. Did you did you look at a sheet with like your kitchen cabinet of people and say, all right, I'm gonna report to this person, or did they tell you? I mean, look, I've had a great relation with Scott since like the start of Figma. Yeah. Scott, by the way, is uh, Scott Belsky, the chief product officer at Adobe. And he reports the same person as you will, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh Scott and I I actually tried to convince Scott to be an investor early on. Turns out he was getting acquired. <laughs> so I didn't get him as an investor. But uh, we've continued to be just friends and build that relationship over the last decade. In this case, it was David who was uh, really bringing Figma in. And so I just kind of assumed that, that was the structure the entire way. <laughs> so you never there was never a conversation. You never said, I actually want to report to the CEO of Adobe. Nope. How much do you stand to personally make from this deal? Depends on the the stock price any given day. I mean, look, like that's not been my focus. You've done the math. What's the what's the low and what's the high? I, I don't have the spreadsheets in front of me. It comes very complex. Are you going to be rich when it's done? Like private chat rich? I, I feel very well off right now already. I have nothing to complain about. I feel super blessed and lucky. So yeah, I I couldn't be more thankful uh, for like, you know, just, just, just kind of like being 30 and uh, irregardless of this deal, where I'm at. So, yeah. How much will your employees get? A lot. Have you done the math? They've all done them. I assure you, every one of your employees has equity in this company has done the math. Is it significant? Are you, are you going to mint a bunch of millionaires? Yeah. I, I hope that we're able to make it so that the team is able to, you know, do whatever they want to do and move on. You know, if they hopefully they'll stay at Figma a long time, but also they can go make great impact in whatever community they're in, like I think it's just an incredible group of people we have at Figma. Super creative. And yeah, I, I'm I'm really excited to 
see them be even more empowered. The reason I ask all those questions in that way is I think you're going to stay at Figma. That's my feeling is that you are very committed to this thing that you started when you were a very young man. But when people get the fuck you money, they might leave, right? They don't have to stay after the deal closes. And you've got to retain great talent that is going to enter the Adobe ecosystem and be able to leave and even just do things inside of Adobe. That's got to come into a much larger corporate structure that's going to have all the attendant Byzantine problems, a large corporate structure, as well as the resources. I don't want to say there's not pros to that, but there are some cons. And then the reason people join startups like Figma is the promise of this payday, the exit payday that you will not be able to offer folks anymore. So have you thought about that life cycle? Okay, I'm going to graduate out a bunch of people who are going to get the money. They're going to get the bag and walk. And then my recruiting pipeline is going to dramatically change because this pot of gold at the end of the rainbow will be gone. So this is wild, but uh, you don't have to believe me if you don't want, but like the number of people that started to apply to Figma after we announced this, it went up tremendously, which I think is counterintuitive because I think a lot of people have that mental model you just described. But just like that's the fact is that I don't know exactly what the percentage lift was and how sustained it was. I mean, probably went down after the acquisition announcement a bit. But um, I mean, we've been getting people that are like really excited about doing this and doing this at the combined company. Well, well, the deal hasn't closed yet, right? I mean, if you get a job at Figma today, you still get Figma oh. equity that might get paid out. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's pinned to Adobe equity. Okay. But, you know, if it ends up going through, then it becomes Adobe equity. If not, it's Figma equity. But I think that the, the chance of going and, and building this context is something that people are actually really excited about. I also think that just looking at our team, we very deliberately tried to hire people that are super missionary throughout the company's life. We haven't always been the highest, you know, paying company in terms of like, you know, you can always find a way to stretch a band, not be fair in your compensation. And we've been very deliberate about making sure that our comp bands are fair and equitable. And through that, I think we have a lot of people who really believe in what we're doing. Not just trying, people are trying to, you know, make the next most dollars. It turns out that this became a good outcome and people are going to to do really well uh, in aggregate, which I'm super, super happy about. But also, yeah, I mean, I, I think that our, our employees are in it because they really love creativity, they love design, they love building things, they like doing it for for other designers and for their creatives. So I, I think that they're they're stoked. So I think you probably know this, but Tony Fidel is a friend of the show, a friend of The Verge. She's been on Decoder recently, he has his book out called Build. A very, it's an uplifting book in many ways, except for the chapters about the Nest acquisition at Google, of which Tony has nothing but unreserved scorn. And Nest was a company that had its own culture. He was building it. Google bought it. They dumped a bunch of money in this company. They turbocharged investment. Google culture seeped into the company and things went totally sideways. I don't know how familiar you are, you are with that story, but it is a pretty common story, right? You do the acquisition so you can turbocharge growth with other people's cash. Oh, there's, there's really positive stories too. GitHub, LinkedIn are some examples. Pixar, heck, Pixar is a really good example, <laughs> um, right? Yeah, but Pixar, so Pixar is a different direction, right? Pixar ate Walt Disney Animation Studios. Totally. The culture of Pixar took over Walt Disney. Here's my question for you. What are the safeguards against the negative outcome, right? The negative outcome is well known. The positive outcome is well known. Do you have a commitment in writing that Figma will be independent? How does that, how does that work? Yeah, what I mean, is that conversation like? been a conversation with sort of like all levels of Adobe and everyone related to the deal about autonomy of Figma, our goals, how we're going to execute against them. And yeah, it's been 
I mean, honestly, just the open-mindedness of the Adobe team to think about this in like a very unique way was part of what got us comfortable and got us there. But they were amazing with it. And, you know, of course, the proof is in the pudding. But do you have a contract that says Figma will be independent? <laughs> Not in those words. <laughs> we have an operating model doc, okay. right, where it's we talk about autonomy. That's not legally binding, but it's a plan. And it's important to think about it together, about how do we go and you know, make this company really amazing in the long term, this combined company. And, you know, Adobe is really wanting to set this up for success. And not just the management of Adobe, but, you know, having just been to Adobe Max last week, it's the greater Adobe team as well. And I was really hardened by that reaction, getting to meet them and spend time with them. And we feel, felt very welcomed. And so I'm really excited to, to spend that time with their team to learn and to figure out how do we go from here? How do we keep building and do the best thing for the customer? And again, for that vision of making design accessible to all, and not just interface design, but like more globally, yeah, all types of design and creativity and productivity. And I think there's a lot to do there. I got to ask you about the tweet, and then I promise we're going to move off of this and talk about WebGL. You know what tweet I'm going to ask you about. In January 2021, you replied to somebody who said, give it 15 years and Figma will replace Adobe. And you replied that the goal is to be Figma and not Adobe. And I got to point out to you, you're about to become Adobe. I, I Again, we're operating autonomously. Uh, we're going to have our own offices. We're going to have our own culture. We're going to definitely have a lot of people that are coming from Adobe into Figma. We're going to interview people. Uh, so it's not like an automatic just rubber stamp, yes. Uh, we're also going to be interviewing people from outside of Adobe and Figma to come into Figma. And we're going to continue to, to have our values. It turns out our values are actually very similar to Adobe. That's one thing I learned through this process. <laughs> our mission is very similar to Adobe. Sure. Uh, you know, like, like literally, you put the values side, side, side by side, and it's like, wow. Turns out, you know, similar people, uh, design-oriented, creative people are attracted to these companies. And I'm, having just met people at Adobe Max, it's like, a lot of these people, they feel like Figmates already. I think there's probably a lot I didn't know about Adobe at that point in terms of how close, in terms of demographic employee makeup, psychological makeup, they felt to us. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, we definitely want to preserve the best of Figma. And so I still stand by that tweet. I don't take it back. It's a pretty bad market right now, if you look at the economy. It's not the market for companies to go public in. It's not a market to go raise money in. In all of your decision-making frameworks, so that factor into it, hey, it's going to be really hard to get more money. And Adobe, our competitor... We're kicking their ass a little bit. They're ready to give us a bunch of money to accelerate this. Was that one of the decisions here? Look, we're we were on a path to continue to be independent as well. Like we we're cash flow positive. We're doubling revenue year over year. We were in as good of a state as we could possibly have been in. So yeah, I mean, it was really about the merits of a combined entity and what we could do together and how we could be useful and how we can make this product better uh, for our audience. You know, that was really the thing that was weighed most heavily. We need to take a break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about the power of the web. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Debate time. Who gets more out of Wix Studio, designers or devs? First off, if you don't know about Wix Studio, it's a web platform offering the flexibility agencies and enterprises need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Now, back to the debate. Designers. You can create fully responsive websites, starting with a blank canvas or choose a template for any layout and tweak per pixel with your CSS. 
If no code's your thing, or you just like to move fast, there's also a ton of smart features, like native no-code animations and responsive AI that adjusts every breakpoint. Devs. Wix Studio offers a powerful suite of homegrown web APIs and REST APIs. Quickly integrate, extend, and write custom scripts in a VS code-based IDE alongside an AI code assistant. Designers or developers. Search Wix Studio and find out for yourself. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We're back. Okay, Figma is a web product built on WebGL. You mentioned at the top of the show, WebGL is technology that's you through your entering on the web. The web is kind of like under attack. Like on top of everything else, this primary surface that you distribute your product on, maybe it's perpetually been under attack. Like first Microsoft tried to kill it. And now maybe Apple's trying to kill it. And who knows what Google's trying to do with it. But like, it always feels a little unsteady. Like I know a bunch of designers who use Figma on Chromebooks. And they don't have Macs or Windows PCs. They just have like nicer Chromebooks and you can use Figma and Chromebooks. But the web is fundamentally Google's revenue platform. Like very few other companies make money on the web writ large. You make money selling seat licenses and enterprise software you distribute on the web, but you don't make money on the web. Google is one of the few companies that makes money on the web. And that means the Apples of the world, the Microsofts of the world are constantly trying to push back against this and capture more value on their platforms directly. When I say perceive the threat, specifically what I mean is that Apple continues to encroach on the web on iOS and, you know, the Safari browser is a big deal and there's a standards battle between Apple and Google in particular that gets pretty heated quite often. You need to build on those standards. So do you watch that from afar or do you just hope that the web persists and grows and innovates in a way that lets you build new features or you like screw it? we better have some native apps in the background. And what are examples of those standards battles that you're referring to? WebGL itself, right? WebGL needs to continue innovating. It, continue, it needs new mm -hmm. standards level capabilities that leverage new hardware capabilities in different computers over time, right? Apple in particular probably does not want to open up the entire graphics pipeline of the M series chip to the web, right? They want to save that for their own native apps. A lot of designers run Macs. How do, you, how do you get through that as a company? Well, it turns out that you can make our software really efficient, even on sort of, you know, WebGL ES, like mapping to low-end chips from phones that were, you know, from five years ago. So can we make it even faster with even more access to the hardware, even better standards? Absolutely. At the same time, if you're efficient about your code, if you're efficient about the way that you write your shaders and manage memory, it turns out it's pretty incredible what you can do. And I think it's a story that persists across computing for a long time, right? You look at what people were doing in the demo scene in the 90s. Yeah. It's amazing, right? And, you know, I think that 
one thing that seems to happen with just the way that programs evolve over time and software evolves over time is that you start to become less disciplined about the way you build software. There are more abstraction layers exist over time. As more abstraction layers exist in the software you're building, each one kind of incrementally slows down a little bit year over year, especially as they become sort of like a black box that's not actually introspected into, and people rely on them in a almost like faith-based way. Uh, of course, that abstraction letter level is like good. We don't touch it anymore. Like the person who worked on it is no longer here. Like don't go there. Like the code is really messy, right? And then you know, of course, it degrades a little bit over year. And so, I think one thing we've tried to do at Figma is just be very disciplined about you know what, how we structure the code base, making sure that we continue to refactor our code year over year. That we clean up our tech debt. That we take out old systems that are no longer needed. By doing so, we've been able to keep things really fast and efficient. At the same time, maybe every month or two, something happens. And I see some uptick on reports on, you know, from our support channels or through Twitter or by talking to someone. And I realize, oh, shit, you know, for some chipset or for some model uh, of computer somewhere or after some recent update was launched, like we introduced some regression, Figma slowed down in some way, someone's unhappy. And, you know, our team has a really good culture of, identifying these issues and then diving into them and talking with users, figuring out what's going on and fixing it. And also a lot of good performance testing to make sure that we're able to continually monitor and understand, are we on track still or are we off track somehow? Like, did we ship something that's bad? And so by having that really high standard from the start and maintaining it over time, it hasn't been an issue for us. Of course, we're always looking for the web to be better, but I think also just the fact that we have our render based in WebGL and that gives us a lot of control over what we actually write to the canvas. You know, that means that we're sort of like on this weird, you know, independent path that's a little bit different than having to run every single advanced web standards. Now, that said, browsers do occasionally ship something that's like a, you know, they, they're trying to fix something here and over a different spot, there's some kind of inefficiency that's, that's added or issue that accumulates. We've worked really hard since the start of the company to maintain and build relationships with browsers so that if that happens, you know, we're seeing in a canary or beta build that there's an issue, then we're able to flag it to a browser vendor way ahead of time, tell them that an issue has occurred, give them a repro, and help them patch the issue. And so by doing that over time, by having those relationships, by also hiring people, frankly, that worked on browsers in the past and have a deep understanding of the browser stack, that's also helped. Do you think that you need to ship native apps on Mac and Windows and iOS and Android? I mean, there are native apps there, but again, the primary canvas here for you is the web. Yeah, I think that there's definitely an opportunity to do more natively in the future for Figma. And, you know, there's always like, for example, pen and touch input. Like, I think that probably even if web standards improve a ton, there's probably some better feeling uh, of lower latency if you do more of the handling of those kind of gestures natively than on the web. And so, and then of course, there's always that next thing of, well, maybe we could do this thing natively instead of on the web. It turns out on the web is good enough most of the time. However, I think we're, we're constantly trying to figure out, okay, what's the next thing that we can start to do natively and what's the progression of that over time? And I do think that like uh, eventually a tablet version of Figma will be really, really useful. Uh, one thing that you know we're announcing very soon, I'll give you a little sneak peek, is we're really excited about our mobile comments that are coming out. And making sure that that was able to be added in a performant way was really important to us. And I think that if you think about it, 
just a lot we can do with comments on mobile that is unique to the mobile form factor over time. Super stoked about that. Um, we also have a bunch we're doing with FigJam on tablet, and we're now also adding you know even more functionality to FigJam. So for example, we're making it so you can play music while you're in FigJam now. We're making it so that you can do better integrations with Teams and Google Meet, Zoom, as well as add sections and tables and better text formatting, these things people have asked for for a long time. So, you know, this stuff is, we're able to add it, even though we're not like having a ton of native surface area with FigJam, but we're also in trying to improve that native surface area over time. It's hard to go get this stat, but my instinct is that Figma is one of the biggest and most lucrative WebGL clients out there. There aren't a lot of others, so it, it seems like a safe bet. Figma is a big and lucrative company. The product is excellent. A lot of people use it, and there's just like not a lot else. So Thank you. you're you're built on this thing that you depend on, and maybe in a way that the other users of WebGL don't depend on it. They're, they're like mostly games, from what I can tell. I, I think there's going to be a lot of more people that use WebGL over time, and yeah, I'm I'm excited just to see. Yeah, you know, the browser uh, I think is being bet on now as a platform by so many people. You know, I get emails every day of people that are building Figma for X. <laughs> You know, you fill in the blank, it's there. People are doing it and they're betting on the web. And so if that was the only thing that we looked back on in 10 years and went, wow, because of Figma existing, more people bet on the web, that would be like something that made me feel really proud. I think there'll be a lot more too, I hope. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's really cool to see so many people betting on the web now, whereas before it was seen as something that people just, you know, didn't believe in. I mean, I'm a huge proponent of the web. I think more people should bet on the web every day. That comes and goes in waves, right? I mean, yep. five years ago, if you weren't shipping a native phone app, you were basically not in the conversation to get funding. Why do you think the web is back in vogue? I think that the power of the URL is one where you're able to really easily share content. And so I can pass content from me to you so easily with URL. Having that URL as just this global address that then people can find information off of I think it it forces choices for a medium. So for example, if you don't have multiplayer editing on the web, it just feels wrong. And that doesn't mean you have to be on the web to have multiplayer editing, right? You can do it natively too, but they go together really well. <laughs> and it also goes together really well when you got a URL on top and you can share it with people. And so there's this cluster of features and functionality, I think, that starts to emerge where it just feels better to be able to navigate from you know, links somewhere that you're encountering on email or Slack onto a website where you're able to have this rich content experience and then in the browser uh, work. And I think it, it really captures, I think, the ethos of my generation, at least. I can't speak for my generation. Do <laughs> it. Be the voice like, of a generation, would... Dylan. You can do it. You got the name for it. Do it. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> I think some of the things that I, I feel are really important, and I, I think a lot of my peers feel are important, are, are things like transparency yeah. and access and collaboration and working together. And I think the web really embodies that ethos. And I think that a lot of desktop software didn't traditionally embody that ethos. It's more siloed. And so it's not like there's one thing that makes the web so powerful, but being able to have that cluster of functionality, of uh, values, I, I think ends up really having an amazing effect. Do you make strategic decisions at, at- at Figma around the 
market shares of different browser engines, you know, on desktop, Chromium is really dominant. Microsoft was forced to effectively concede and move edge to Chromium on mobile. Mobile Safari is what it is. And if you don't address mobile Safari, you don't get a whole bunch of people because there's no other browser engines on the iPhone. Is that something that you have to think about as you make technical and business decisions? Not really. Like I, I, if that is a conversation that's happening, it's not rising to me. I, I think though that, like I said before, when there are issues, we have to pay attention to them. We have to be in communication with browser vendors. You know, it's probably the case that there's like small bugs, small issues that exist uh, and depending on market share, that also that impacts the priority at which we like attack those and try to fix them and you know push browser vendors to to um, fix those things. But that probably is the extent of it. Does anything on, on that level come up to you? Is there? Do you ever do you ever get the phone call? It's like I need you to call Sundar Pichai and get him to fix Chrome. Like, does that happen to you? I, I'm laughing at uh, the Sundar one because I I literally have an email thread from a long time ago where I was trying to get some. I forget exactly what it was at the time. This is like 2015, and I was trying to get something some issue fixed with Chrome, and I got an intro to Sundar who was not yet CEO of Google, <laughs> and um, you know it went all the way to Sundar and then. It went through this chain of product managers and eventually it ended up with my friend who was someone I like hung out with all the time <laughs> and already knew. And, you know, she was like, oh, hi, Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I felt like a total fool for, for escalating that one. Do you, but how often do you escalate things? Does it happen or is that mostly on the technical side of your company? It hasn't happened as much recently because, again, we now have such good relationships with browsers and they've been um, so helpful. But in the earlier days... We just didn't have the tension of, of these teams, partially because we weren't at scale yet, right? I think like if you have more people that are being impacted by an issue, that impacts the time that issues dealt with, which makes sense, right? Yeah. I just want to be not, you mentioned bottoms up. Like I was, the reason I'm asking is I wonder if it gets, does it get easier when half the company is using your tool and they are running into problems? Totally. Like I, oh, I have to imagine that, yes. that is the case at Microsoft yeah. and Google and Apple and, and all the rest. For sure. No, I mean like definitely... When Google adopted Figma, uh, I feel like they cared a lot more about Figma <laughs> running well, <laughs> which also makes sense. <laughs> we need to take one more break, but when we come back, Dylan and I get into it about VR and crypto. Stick around. We're back. I just spotted my review unit of the Meta Quest Pro. It's, it's sitting right over there. So <laughs> I need to ask you about VR. Meta thinks that we're all going to be hanging out in the metaverse and like winking at each other and, you know, connecting emotionally because we can see each other's faces. They've got a little bit of a whiteboarding tool. It's very early. Is that something that you see being competitive with you? Is that something that you want to participate in? Is that just a distraction? Yeah, I think it'd be great to participate in that one day. I think right now we're still early in terms of how many people are using VR and it seems like an exponential graph, which is really exciting as a new platform. But we're at the early stages at exponential right now. And so I think we'll probably spend more calories thinking about that when <laughs> the exponential curve goes up more. You'll believe it when you see it is basically what you just said. No, no. I mean, like I like VR. I was on Pat Leave earlier this year, yeah. and I spent a lot of time in VR. Like, it's really good. I'm excited to try the new Quest, too, by the way. And I think as a gaming platform, it's excellent. I think as a productivity platform, it's emerging. Yeah. And I think that it, there's still stuff that has to be solved around how much time can you spend in VR without feeling that 
like a headache or motion sickness or just kind of fatigued. Like I personally don't get motion sickness or headache, but I have people I know that do. And I, but I, do, I do feel like some fatigue after, you know, half an hour to an hour in, in VR still. Now, I haven't tried the new headsets yet, so it's possible that that's been fixed already. And I think over time, it, like when I tried VR in 2016, 2015, or whatever it was, it was like five minutes. <laughs> you know, so now to get to like half an hour yeah. to an hour, and I also, after five minutes, I felt like I had like a crazy night out drinking. Yeah. Right. And now it's like such an improved experience. And I feel like that experience is going to keep improving, just like there's going to be more people adopting, and it might be an exponential. And as it gets to that point where you can spend a few hours in VR and take the headset off and you're like, I feel fine, I think the possibilities unlock a lot more too. And so I'm, I'm actually quite bullish on the VR, on VR and I'm really impressed with Meta's dedication to the platform. I, I think it's quite visionary and bold. It's a great example of, of someone trying to just like will a new technology into existence. Yeah, but how many engineers are you paying for to build VR Figma right now? Zero. <laughs> right. So the, the reason I'm asking is... I. I think VR, I love my quest too. I like use it every day. Yeah. Um, but I use it to work out in. I use it as a fitness platform as I try to use it for collaboration. I would tell you that being on a zoom meeting with fig jam open on a tablet. So I can just draw at people is like immediately more evocative to me than we're all going to be cartoons, the metaverse. And I'm just wondering where you are calibrated on that spectrum. I think that, you know, when you take these paradigms and you try to just retrofit them into a new space, it's not always right. And I think it's a good starting point. But like, I think that the, the real opportunity probably is imagine that task of having a meeting, of brainstorming, of ideating, of trying to collaborate in a space, right? Those are the things people are trying to do in Fig Jam. So what does it mean to do that in VR? I think that's a much more interesting question than like, how do you take this 2D primitive and put it on a plane in a 3D space in VR? <laughs> And so, you know, when we get to the point where we see the traction of the platform, uh, like I said, the ergonomics are a little better. I think it's going to be really exciting to explore this. Just like for, by the way, we are just now building tablet for FigJam and for Figma. And that's, you know, people, tablets been around for a long time. <laughs> it's not like this is a new thing, right? So I think when it comes to new surfaces, it takes a lot to take people out of the surface that they're already used to, put them on a new surface. You have to have some benefit. And that said, like from a, as a product person, as someone who cares about design, I love the challenge of being able to work in a new medium and think about the ways to, to put that, to solve that, that product challenge in that new medium. That to me is really exciting. By the way, a lot of what you're saying around VR, you're like, oh yeah, I use it for fitness. I'm like, I use it for gaming. It reminds me of crypto in oh, some God. ways, right? Yeah, this is another hour. You got another hour for this this metaphor? Let's go. I got time. Let's, you let's got time? It. Look, I mean, I think for crypto for a long time, it was like, yeah, you know, people are just gambling on this thing. What's it good for? And it was like, well, maybe there's a store of value. And then it was, well, maybe there's this DeFi thing. And now it's like, how about NFTs? Perhaps next there's gaming. And And look, you know, I'm not saying that the crypto industry is without sin. <laughs> like, there's a lot of things that are pretty fucked up in crypto. Yeah. But I'm also saying that I think what you see when you have a new technology emerge, a new platform emerge, is that people discover the use cases of it one by one. And at first, it seems like it's nascent, that it's actually worthless, you know, et cetera. But then over time, you realize, holy, holy crap, there's a lot going on here. And there's so much that we can do on this new platform. Right. Machine learning. I mean, like when I remember, you know, when we were starting Figma, uh, Chris Ola was in my TL fellowship class 
And Chris Ella later went on to work on Google Brain, was responsible for all sorts of interesting research into how neural nets uh, actually work. And then he was at OpenAI and then Anthropic now. And he was showing me just these like very hacked together demos in his terminal where he was like shelling into AWS, running on GPUs, very basic neural nets. And he's like, this is amazing. And I was like, yeah, cool. <laughs> like you can classify some numbers. Like I've seen the same demo before, you know, and, and then to the, what I was missing was the exponential curve of that technology. And, you know, the fact that it was actually a paradigm shift from, you know, more structured machine learning models and people trying to like hardcore math in to make AI into, you know, this new representation and new way to actually uh, solve problems. Then you get something like transformers on top of that. And suddenly, so many more applications become possible. And now we're at this phase now with like uh, not just you know GANs and uh, diffusion models, but where people are actually taking some of the real interesting tech and applying it to entirely new industries and new areas. And the use cases are proliferating. But let me let me push back on this just a little bit because this is fascinating yeah. with AI, machine learning, and now generative image models. Very cool party trick, right? Like. I know some newsletter authors who are like, well, I want to illustrate my newsletter with, with Dolly. That's cool. It's, it's very neat. And there's some stuff that might get built on top of it. And there's some machine learning applications that are in, indeed very useful to large kinds of industries all over the place. But there are capabilities that got le- like layered in to things people are already doing or capabilities that were layered in to make something cheaper. Like image generation is actually we're just going to make something much, much cheaper for people. VR and crypto, their applications in, in search of a market, right? I don't think DeFi is like an actual application yet. It's a, it's a conceptual market that might exist if crypto works the way we want it to. VR is like, I mean, I've got the headset. I use it. I use it for games. I use it for fitness. It's searching for its big consumer application. And they keep firing things at the wall. And I think that's a real difference. Whereas I could come to you and say, okay, in five years, I'm going to type music player app into Figma and Figma is going to call up Dolly and fire up and like fire out the, a sketch of a music player app that I can go then further manipulate. And I can, I can see that sitting from here. Whereas I couldn't tell you what NFT capability you should add to Figma today. First of all, it's pretty amazing you know, a year or two years ago, I think if we were having the same conversation about AI ML, you might, you could very easily have said, hey, this is research in search for a problem. Like, this is just a bunch of people that are doing cool math, like, and it's not clear that there's actually something here yet. Like, what, what are these models actually good for? You got GPT-3, sure. You know, but like, what recent advancements have we seen in GPT-3? The large language models have kind of been tapped out. What are people building on it? And turns out, even on GPT-3, let alone the new improvements we're seeing to large language models, we're actually seeing uh, incredible things being built in those now, you know, and they're impacting a lot of different industries. So I, I think just like the, the timing of the question ends up mattering. I think that there is something to having scarce digital goods. Do I think it was overhyped and there's a bubble? Absolutely, I do. And that's, I think, the curve that most technology is on. In fact, I think that we're going to see probably an even bigger bubble around a lot of things that are uh, sort of called AI as a collection of things, yeah. right? If I'm seeing the VC investment patterns that are going on, <laughs> AI feels a lot like crypto right now. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, from, you know, maybe before the crash, <laughs> just to be clear. Um, 
So I, I think every technology has a hype cycle. Yeah. Um, and VR, you know, I, I think that in the day it's like, okay, what's, what are the behaviors that are, are new that you're doing? You know, did you increase your fitness spend? Yeah. When you got a Oculus Quest? I really did. It's a real thing that happened. You should listen to that episode. There we had go. Chris Milk from Supernatural and we talked about the whole thing. I will. I'm sorry I missed yeah. it. No, it's like, it's, it's the thing that drives VR adoption. It's like, a, a, it's a completely underreported phenomenon that the thing that drives VR adoption is fitness. And I think that's fascinating, right? Here's this thing yeah. that's supposed to disembody you into the internet and it makes people consider their bodies in a much different way. That's great. I totally I buy it. I think it's fascinating. But it's also interesting that like, then you are now the, you know, the GDP has gone up. Yeah. Like, you know, there's actually been a net value creation there. Crypto is interesting because it's a little bit different when it comes to value because a lot of things in the crypto ecosystem are, I wouldn't call them Ponzi, but they have these kind of Ponzi characteristic of the more money that flows in the system, the more the asset price goes up, the more money comes out of the system, the more the asset price goes down, which I, I think it's wrong to say that collectibles markets, art markets don't have value. At the same time, there's something that I think people realize that characteristic and it feels a little weird. And then AI, I think, could be very deflationary, by the way. How, how so? Well, I mean, all technology is deflationary, but you know, depending on how much more efficient AI makes things, it could cut into I see what you mean. the time that people are are being paid for. Let me ask you this directly. I mean, that this is your business, right? You make people more productive. You make designers more collaborative. Do you foresee a world in which Figma has generative tools in it? So I really can type in new Verge website and Figma pops out a mock for me to then iterate on. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of ways to do that, right? And... What I'm excited about is how do you make it so that designers are able to explore more of an option space and then bring what their expertise is as well. It's like get inspiration from a model, just like they get inspiration from like looking at Dribble or Behance or Figma's community right now, uh, other designers work, you know, generative model, it's your operating latent space. It's kind of the same thing in some ways. Mm-hmm. People may not like me saying that, but I think that there's inspiration can be drawn from lots of places. But then how do you work with an AI agent versus like an AI agent is replacing a designer? And I think that across all creative work, that's going to be a really important thing to figure out because I think that, you know, the bear, let's just take the bear case, right? Which is the tech we have today is like the tech we get. There's no evolutions. Never mind that every day on Twitter, I'm reading, seeing two new papers that I'm just like are mind blowing. <laughs> let's just say that, you know, that stops tomorrow. <laughs> um, so the bear case is we have what we have now in AI and if we can take that and just apply it to new areas of the economy, already that is going to be very disruptive. The base case would be, you know, we're continuing to see for some time, you know, then it asymptotes. And at some point we don't see much more around AI, you know, for a while. The capabilities kind of max out across a few domains. You know, again, even more disruptive. A bull case where there's AGI, I don't even know how to think about that, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that the world could get really weird really fast. Yeah, I think then we're all out of work. That's the most deflationary. No, I, I mean, it just work might change in a very fundamental way. <laughs> if there's, if there's AGI. Right? I think it's, yeah, I, I yeah, think we all we'll be working for the robot. I, I did a tweet recently. I'll, I'll read it to oh you. Oh my God. I did a poll. I said, AGI has arrived. Everyone is saying it's way smarter than humans. And one of experts claim it's quote, human aligned end quote. Recently, political leaders asked the AGI to propose a, quote, optimal system of government, end quote, and resulting constitutional amendments. Would you consider this a proposal? 
And the options were yes, yes, if still democracy, no, see results. 21.5% said see results. The remainder, 35.3% said yes. 25.5% said yes, if still democracy. 17.7% said no. I thought that was really interesting because, first of all, I was surprised that so many people were open to non-democratic systems of government, (laughs) uh, which is not something I would have expected going into that question. Uh, But also, the no answers, I thought, would be higher. Because if you think about it for a second, it's like, okay, if AGI existed, it would be able to basically market to you whatever idea it had in a way that was, like, presumably something that would sway your opinion. Yeah. Well... And so the the fact that almost twenty only less than twenty percent of people said no, it's like okay, people are open to the idea of an AGI proposed utopia. Now, how do you know if it's actually human aligned? There's a lot of like alignment issues that come up with that too. That I think that people are just not even on people's radar yet. But again, like AGI, too complex. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it freaks my brain a little bit. Yeah, I think we're. I think you and I are going to be lucky enough to uh, not have to experience it. I worry about our kids. We both have small children. We got to get out of here. I can't believe we got all the way to AGI in this interview. All right, Dylan, you've given us so much time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. I think I know what's next for Figma, but what what should people be on the lookout for? So much. I mean, there's going to be a ton that we do around Figma design over the next year, and I'm excited for people to see that. Design systems uh, were just the start. FigJam in collaboration with that. Um, like I said, we just were launching a bunch around collaboration today. You know, everything from new areas where you're able to add sort of nouns to the FigJam canvas, like tables, but also music, voting, integrations, and mobile comments notifications. But I think there's so much more coming for FigJam and trying to make it so that you're able to have async beat sync, make it so that whether you're in the file at the same time or you're not, your means are able to run better and lots more over the next year about that. But going back to the start of our conversation, how do you navigate that process in product development from idea to design production and make it a really great process and do that handoff, whether it's a design system or your design file, with engineering more effectively and make it a great experience for developers being Figma. That's another area that we really care about. All right, this was great, man. Thank you for getting into it. I loved it. You got you got to come back soon. We've never had anybody in the middle of an acquisition, so now we got to follow up after the acquisition and see how it went. So come back soon, Dylan. It's great talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks again to Dylan Field for taking the time to talk to me today on Decoder. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to know what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter, for at least the foreseeable future. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, hit us with that five-star review. And as many of you have discovered, if you tweet about Decoder, I will almost certainly retweet you. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. It was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Jackson Bierfeld. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters, and our executive director is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.